0: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor. Here's our panel. Minnie Rahman is a migrant rights campaigner currently on a break from the day job. Hi, Minnie. Hi, Roz. Part of the new Bill of Rights bill has been leaked. What would it mean for the Rwanda flights?
1: Yeah, so um, listeners will remember from last week that the last six passengers on the Rwanda flight were taken off last minute because of an intervention by the ECHR. So the British Bill of Rights would essentially mean that the government can ignore that type of ruling and just carry on anyway. But I think more importantly is that the, the bill will have a very profound effect on other types of migrants too, not just asylum seekers who are currently the only ones on the Rwanda flights. You know, I think there's a real reason that it's called the the British Bill of Rights. You know, migrants or people who've lived in this country their whole life but don't have a British passport are a very key target in this bill. So fundamentally, it strips away Article 8, which is the right to a family life. And it's used quite often as a reason to stop people being deported. Um, But obviously, if you take away or strip away Article 8 rights just to target one specific group, you weaken protections for everyone, for all of us. And I think that's why everyone should be concerned about the bill. You know, it's a deliberate divide and rule tactic. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Best for Britain. Hi, Naomi.
2: Hi, Roz.
0: You're very pleased that last week the Unison Union called for proportional representation. Is this a big moment for PR?
2: It's huge. It's absolutely huge. Um, Best for Britain attended the Unison conference last week and alongside... Lots of other groups lobbying for the pro-PR uh, motion to be passed, including Labour for a New Democracy, and others. We were lobbying delegates from across the country, um, and it passed with an overwhelming majority. And so for the UK's largest union to now support PR, joining uh, Unite and, and CWU suggests just how much of a consensus there is within the Labour movement for uh, a big old cheerio to First Past the Post. And so the leaders of the party now, I think, do have to start listening and it will be all eyes on the Labour Party conference in the autumn to see whether it can go even further. Our guest
0: this week is a professor of political science at the University of Manchester, author and commentator Rob Ford. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. Thanks for having me. It's been a bad week for the French President Emmanuel Macron. His Ensemble coalition lost its overall majority and Marine Le Pen's party did better than most people had expected. What would your advice be for him now?
3: Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's always difficult to govern without a majority. But I think what needs to be borne in mind with the composition of this parliament is on the left, you've got an extremely broad and quite fractious Coalition that they managed to put together uh, from Jean-Luc Mélenchon. I'm not sure if any of the others here are fans of the show Baron Noir, but this was literally a plot line on that show about four years ago, and it seems to have come to life, uh, this sort of union de la gauche. Um, but the thing is, They don't really have anything holding them together except for distaste for Macron. So there's potential to pick people off on the centre-left on that side. And then you've got the centre-right, who've got about, I think, 60 or 70 seats. um, And uh, probably that's the direction Macron has gravitated towards as well. And so I think the thing is, although he doesn't have enough seats to govern alone, French party politics is always quite fissile. And the current coalitions accepting the um, Marine Le Pen's uh, national rally that, that they are fairly fractious and fissile, so I wouldn't be surprised if it becomes a game of picking off different groups of legislators on different issues. Now, that's very labour-intensive and difficult and uncertain, but that's really the only choice available to him. But it may not be; he may not be as powerless as some people are portraying him as being in in, in the wake of this result.
0: This week on the show the RMT is digging in and so is Grant Shapps but what do the public think and does anyone have a clue what to do about inflation and 6 years after the referendum has it really been that long oh god what now asks whether we can start talking about brexit again as if we ever stopped Members of the RMT union have walked out this week in an attempt to get a pay rise closer to inflation and to halt job cuts. Transport Secretary Grant Shapps says it's not his problem and he won't join talks. But the RMT says the government is pulling the strings behind the scenes. In the meantime, Shapps is trying to blame Labour for the strikes. That's right, the party that's been out of power for 12 years. Naomi, if the RMT get the 7% rise they want, it will set a precedent for other public
2: sector workers. Is that why Shapps is talking so tough? Look, today's shocking inflation statistics show that the biggest driver of inflation is not public sector worker pay, but gas and electricity prices. Uh, We've got food and clothing price rises beginning to contribute more to that headline inflation figure, though nowhere near yet close to those of fuel and energy. And, of course, a lot of our food and clothing um, is imported. So the government, once again, is failing to pull the levers it could to help dampen inflation, uh, like, uh, I don't know, reducing trade friction with our nearest and largest trade partner, and blaming everyone but themselves instead. So what Shaps is just doing is blaming the party who have been out of power for 12 years because the party who have been in power for 12 years have either run out of ideas or aren't prepared to pull the levers that they do have at their disposal purely for ideological reasons. I mean, this week we've seen a number of unions
0: say that they will take, they will ballot for industrial action. Barristers have just voted to escalate their industrial action, and teachers, nurses, postal workers are all going to poll their workers because they want a rise that reflects inflation. And of course, Boris Johnson's argument is that that would force inflation higher. (laughs) But at the same time today, he has let it slip that pensions will be going up by about 10%. Are public sector workers supposed to grin and bear this massive
2: cut in real terms wages just so that we can bear down on inflation? I mean that 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 does seem to be the government's position. It's not just pensioners who apparently don't con, you know contribute to uh, increased inflation with their pension going up. Um, apparently, neither do bankers because the government has also announced it's trying to take off any breaks on bankers' bonuses. And remember, it was a Johnson big set speech last year that was all about making the UK a high wage economy, but he didn't mean you. He meant the bankers, the financiers, the hedge fund managers, the Tory party donors, not the key workers, not the essential workers, and not those who got us through the last two years. Why is it never cost restraint, price rise restraint on anyone else? Why is it always the workers? You don't hear them saying to businesses, just can you absorb a bit of extra cost you know reduce your margin slightly and and please not put up prices as much no they never say that it's always about unionized workers
0: mini number 10 has promised to make it easier to bring in agency staff to keep the railways running is it really going to be easy to do that
1: no i mean what an antagonistic thing to suggest i mean there's a technical way to introduce it and the reality of the situation. So technically, the government would have to repeal a 1973 ban, um, which was introduced by Edward Heath. I think actually, if my memory's right, David Cameron also suggested doing this at some point in 2015 and then backed out. Um, there are rumours that Quasi-Karteng wants to do this through secondary legislation so that he can get rid of the ban by mid-July which is obviously an appalling way to push through kind of controversial changes in law but but technically that would be relatively easy to do because it doesn't require a bill through parliament but realistically you know they would come up with a fair bit of resistance from agencies themselves so the the recruitment and employment confederation which represents around three thousand agencies has said that that they don't want this and this just risks bringing third party workers into an already kind of toxic dispute and it will likely prolong the dispute and it isn't a particularly healthy way to go about managing a very public conflict. Um, Agency workers are also quite expensive to train and to hire and it's not even possible that they would be able to train people to the level that is required for some of the roles on strike. The final cherry on the cake is that Lifting the ban on agency workers is in contravention to international labour laws. So it would lower our worldwide employment rights standards, which I, I guess is the government's MO anyway. They just want us to be worse than everyone else. Keir Starmer warned
0: his French ventures not to turn out on RMT picket lines, but some of them did anyway. He must have known they would. So what was the rationale behind that? Oh,
1: Keir Starmer drives me mad. (laughs) I mean, I I think that he is just not a very good risk analyst, or he's just extremely risk averse. You know, I, I think from his perspective, he is constantly in between a rock and a hard place. He's assessing the risk of oh, if I do this, the Tories will have ammunition against me. If I don't do it, then the Labour left will be pissed off. And he's always trying to draw a distinction between himself and Corbyn. He doesn't want to do anything that would would put him in the same sentence as Corbyn, I think. And I think that leaves him kind of stricken. And his default is just to try not to draw any attention to himself and to expect the rest of the party to, to fall in line behind him, which hasn't really worked. I, I guess it would make sense from the position that maybe he doesn't care too much about Labour left voters. You know, you can maybe assume that they will always vote tactically to get the Tories out, um, regardless of their feelings. And I think he's trying to target some sort of imaginary middle voter. But what he he doesn't seem to ever calculate is the risk of compromising Labour's values and not setting out what Labour would do for the country. And you can clearly connect this to, to the cost of living crisis. This is public service workers, it's unions. This is Labour's bread and butter. And, you know, from his positioning on this, if you were a public service worker, you might assume that he doesn't have your back. Well, at least that's, that's how I would feel. And I think that's very dangerous for Labour. Um, so, yeah, I think his risk analysis needs some work. Rob, what do we know about what the public think of the strikes?
3: Uh, well, th- this gets uh, rather interesting and I think uh, speaks nicely to some of the points that, that Minnie's just been making. I-, I think both Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer, perhaps reflecting their age, they're both in their late 50s, are kind of trapped in this rather simplified one-dimensional narrative about how strikes play with voters That that, that is essentially like that this is some sort of a rerun of the late 1970s with perhaps slightly less terrible haircuts and fashion choices. Um, but that's not how it plays with the public, they recognise that they can walk and chew gum, uh, is one way of putting it. There was a nice uh, uh, poll that I think Jen Williams from the MEM was tweeting out a little bit earlier that suggested that a majority of voters... Uh, support the strikes and are sympathetic to the strikers and a similarly large majority of voters find the strikes to be disruptive. And it seems to be a concept that, that neither the government nor the opposition seem capable of processing that people can find something inconvenient and annoying and not want it, but at the same time see the people who are producing that inconvenience an annoyance as people who have a justified grievance and are pursuing it in a justified uh, way. Uh, and I think at this stage when we've got a sort of cost of living crisis where everyone's seeing their wages falling it doesn't necessarily follow that people look at a group who are reacting to that by trying to get a pay rise in a sort of um you know why why should you get to the front of the queue i think the other area where there's a big mistaken assumption is this idea that it's going to be remotely credible to try and paint this as in some sense labor's fault um Voters in general, and in particular kind of lower attention voters who are more likely to switch sides at elections and so on, they have a pretty simple rule when they look at things, which is, is it going right or going wrong? And if it's going wrong, it's the government's fault. You can't shift the blame onto the side that aren't in charge. It won't fly.
0: And of course, Labour claims the government wants the strikes to go ahead in order to sow division. Is this Another leaf from the Johnson playbook. Are we are we seeing Johnson trying to sow these divisions in order to, to create a kind of divide and rule?
3: Well, I mean, that, that polarisation is kind of his approach, always in politics, bright dividing lines and so on. Obviously, it played very well for him in 2019. But again, I think one has to bear in mind that The context that we're in now midway through 2022 is nothing like the context of 2017. It's nothing like the context of even a a year ago. Um, If you are yourself a toxic and widely disliked leader, and it cannot be repeated often enough, given how many people still cling to this myth, of Johnson as some sort of you know remarkable populist Heineken politician, that he is now in the same league as John Major after the ERM crisis, as Margaret Thatcher after the poll tax, as Jeremy Corbyn in the second half of 2019. He is toxic with most voters. His ratings are terrible and they're not getting better. Now, if you have a leader who's like that and they go for the polarisation route, well, the risk is they polarise the electorate one-third, two-thirds against them. And we can see this across the board in the performance ratings statistic, the government's ratings on basically everything, including these issues that they're looking to pump up towards the top of the agenda, uh, like transport, like labour relations, like uh, Rwanda and the refugee crisis and so on. Their ratings on all these issues are ghastly too. You know, they're they're trying to take attention away from uh, inflation, where I think they have like something like a 70%. Disapproval and direct it towards immigration, where they have a 68% disapproval. That's not a big improvement. So it seems to me that they have a strategy and a playbook that is based upon um, 2019 assumptions. uh, And that's just not the context and environment we're in right now. And possibly 2019 assumptions about how much disruption rail strikes
0: actually cause, of course, because they don't cause. As much as they used to, because so many people can work from home, not everybody, but a lot of people. there were
2: so many disappointed journalists yesterday <laughs> standing <laughs> on you know platforms that were just pretty empty, and you know yeah they they just looked so morose that it hadn't caused the head scratching, frustrated chaos that they have seen of previous strikes. (laughs)
0: Minnie the last rail strikes on this scale were in 1989 and they led to workers getting
1: an 8.8 percent pay rise. What are the RMT's chances of getting what they want? Um, I think quite high. I mean you know the vast majority of people in those unions have voted to take strike action and they've done that because they believe it's their only option at this stage. You know. These are people whose wages have been suppressed for years and are now facing a cost of living crisis, which will leave them worried about paying their mortgages, feeding their kids. You know, people like many of our listeners, probably. And as Naomi said, what they're asking for is is pretty reasonable. And as Rob said, it has backing from the public. So I I don't think this will end until they win. And I, I personally don't think it should end until they win. Um, What I do think will happen is that it will get dragged out for as long as possible, and it will be really painful. And I think it will be complemented by other people in other unions striking. And, you know, I think there will just continue to be a big conversation about a lot of people in this country who are at the forefront of COVID, who really push themselves, haven't been compensated, and their living conditions are being made worse. And I think we'll just see more consensus around how they should not put up with that forever.
0: So these summer of discontent headlines I see everywhere are actually justified.
1: Uh, I would say so. (laughs) Well, if inflation
0: wasn't so high, we wouldn't be seeing these pay demands probably. And it rose, as Amy said earlier, to 9.1% today. That's the highest for 40 years. Do you think the government is panicking?
3: Uh, Well, I think it's no wonder that the government is extremely anxious about this issue because uh, I I was looking again at the sort of uh, issue salience data. Uh, But one of my favourite sources of data is the the Mori issue salience data because it doesn't give people a set of responses to choose from. It just says, what's on your mind? What do you think is an important issue in the country at the moment? And then they just write down whatever people say. And the remarkable thing about inflation is it tracks... The headline inflation numbers incredibly closely whenever inflation goes up the number of people naming it as an issue immediately goes up too and when you think about it that's very logical because inflation is one of those issues that everyone universally experiences everyone has to go out shopping everybody has to fill their car up everybody gets energy bills so they're going to see it and respond to it really quickly so to have inflation at a 40-year high is an enormous problem Uh, for a government. So it's no wonder that they're sort of flailing around looking for solutions. The bigger problem for them, I think, is the driver of this inflation is structural and it's global. And it doesn't seem that there's going to be any way of uh, bringing it down quickly. All you can try and do is manage the symptoms and manage the pain. And uh, well, you're just going to have to decide who who gets hit with the most pain. That's never an uh, an offer that... um, governments like to deal with, particularly not governments like Johnson that try to be quite populist and cake for all and so on. Um, so are they panicking? Yes. Do they have reason to panic? Well, yes, because they've got an issue that everyone dislikes, that everyone's focused on, and they haven't got any good options for resolving it.
0: I Amy, mean, let's talk briefly about the scandal that is being referred to as Carrygate. Uh, Number wow. 10 confirmed that it asked the Times to drop a story that Boris Johnson tried to hire Carrie Simmons as his chief of staff while he was foreign secretary. Back then, of course, she was Carrie Simmons and not Carrie Johnson, but he was still having intimate relations with her. This isn't a new story. It was in Lord Ashcroft's book about Carrie Johnson recently. Why did the Times roll over so easily when Number 10 complained? It seems on the face of it
2: odd that they should deny a story that's Pretty much been confirmed. Indeed. I mean, first things first, the admission from the heart of government that they personally intervened in a story about the Prime Minister is an attack on a free and fair press. And it's a fundamental pillar of any functioning democracy. In terms of why, um, the New European reports that it's because of the power and influence of Carrie Johnson.
0: I must admit, you don't hear very much from the people before who used to defend Carrie Johnson on the grounds that uh, she was only the Prime Minister's wife and it was uh, not very feminist to attack her. That line of... Um, <laughs> it does seem to have, to have dried up, up, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? Are you worried about the grip Johnson's government has on newspapers in this country, though? Because it's not just the Times. You see the Mail and the Express, and it's like a British yeah. version of Pravda. It is extraordinary, the stuff they push every day.
2: It, 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 you're right, and it's not uh, you know—it's not just the Times. Um, the front page of the Daily Mail today, as we're recording on Wednesday, reads, Labour isn't working. The, the toys have literally been in government for 12 years. That's not journalism. It's a distraction tactic. It's a division tactic. And, of course, there are rumours flying around this week that Paul Dacre, editor of the Mail, is up for a peerage. Um, and whether or not the rumours are true, this is nothing new. Johnson has tried to squeeze every avenue of accountability, whether it's newspapers, whether it's our right to protest, whether it's the independence of the elections watchdog, he will do everything he can and his team to duck and dive and close off avenues for holding them to account. And we are in a very, very dangerous time for British democracy and it's getting worse.
0: Now it's time for a question from our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. This week, Charlie Covell asks, if you could pick any UK leader from any era, including those long dead, who would you pick right now to sort out the current bin fire that we find ourselves in? Who would do best?
2: Anyone. Anyone would do better. (laughs) Anyone.
0: yeah it is is attempting an obvious answer but let's try and drill down a little bit more Rob who would you pick
3: uh well this this reflects some of my uh, personal prejudices in terms of favorite political leaders but I would I would pick Harold Wilson um both because um he is uh probably the most successful uh politician of the post-war era in terms of Um, Squaring impossible circles over and over again. He was used to working with uh, deeply divided fractious parties. He's dealt with unions. He's dealt with immigration, um, and therefore I think he is the ideal man for a situation that seems to be not one dumpster fire but a whole procession (laughs) of dumpster fires. Because if you brought him back to life, he'd say, "Oh look, it's 1975 all over again. Oh, and we're all over Europe too. Brilliant. Uh, I know this. I know this. I can see from
2: it." (laughs)
3: <laughs> Minnie, who would you
1: pick? No, I honestly, I don't, I, I mean, Rob's gone with a very sensible answer. I don't think I know enough about the, the, the situations of previous leaders, but my first instinct was just to go, none of them, nobody, everyone gets cancelled. Let's start again from the beginning and find someone new because
2: I just... I don't think anything's gone particularly well. The way. I reckon Minnie's <laughs> an Athenian and it'd be, everyone has to take their turn to be... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Environment, environment I country. just, I don't know, it feels
1: really painful to like look back on the history of the UK and try and work out who was the best. Um, that's how I feel about it.
2: I mean, the question was framed as li- any UK leader, not necessarily <laughs> prime minister or, you know, you could yeah. interpret leader as leader of a... Uh, movement or a band or a company or <laughs> party. yeah I mean I can think
0: of some kings who would come down quite hard on the strikers <laughs>
2: <laughs> what about you Rose any any thoughts
0: oh I don't know it's so hard but I mean maybe you need to go back to you know Lloyd George era That 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 might be that might be quite interesting even though of course they have no practical experience or very little of this kind of thing or
2: I think yeah. I think you could be on something because I think Attlee and Gladstone would adapt quite well. I mean Atlee's cabinet were at each other's throats like ferrets in a sack, but he did manage them quite well, uh, ranging from like the completely useless through to the super talented. He was like a football mm. manager of UK prime ministers and all <laughs> and more effective for it. And as for Gladstone, I mean obviously politics has changed so much since then that we forget what a clusterfuck it was when he came onto the scene. Um, all the parties were in flux. There was no clear idea what any of them believed in, no clear mandate, no clear democracy. Politics was totally filled with chances and crooks in Parliament and the uh, abuses of power really commonplace at all levels. Who does that remind you of? But he brought people together around a pretty sort of clear, principled approach aimed at a fairer society for all. So I don't know who I'd choose between those two, but if, uh, if I can't have a uh, sober Charles Kennedy, I'll, I'll plump for one of them.
3: Uh, Wilson, Lloyd, George Alliance would be the greatest government of all time, in my opinion. I definitely yeah. vote for that.
2: You could
0: also think of Robert Peel, because I mean, you know, he did he did do a lot, managing to get consensus with the Whigs over the Corn Laws. That's true. Um, there's there's maybe something to to learn from that as well. I noticed none of you say Tony Blair. So that's Because <laughs> Andrews
2: at Glastonbury this week, so he's not in our ear going. One of you say Blair. <laughs> that would
1: not come from me. <laughs>
2: I thought you wouldn't really know.
0: (laughs) It's almost six long years since Theresa May said that Brexit means Brexit and two and a half years since we actually left the EU. Yet for many people, Brexit remains as elusive as ever. Was it enough to leave the bloc? When will we see the benefits? And why can't we seem to talk about it without people shouting Ramona? One man who has been notoriously quiet about Brexit is Keir Starmer. And last weekend, the Labour MP Stella Creasy said it was time to end the self-imposed silence. She said it plays into Johnson's hands and is hampering attempts to tackle urgent issues like the cost of living crisis and the climate emergency. Rob, is it time for Labour
3: to start talking about Brexit?
0: Because after all, the public say they don't think it's going very well.
3: Well, I mean, I think... This point can be argued either way. I I understand where Stella Creasy's coming from. You shouldn't let the government entirely define this very important issue agenda. Labour need to set out what its values and priorities are, because we're going to still, you know, Europe's still there. We're going to need to negotiate with them in the next parliament and so on. But if I can put the counter-argument, I think what Stella Creasy as someone from a very Remain background in a very Remain seat may be overlooking is the massive headache that is the combination of political geography and Brexit partisanship for the Labour Party. The problem that Labour have had ever since 2016 is that the voters that they have and the activists that they have are strongly remain in partisan terms, in policy terms and so on. And the voters that they need and the seats that they need tend to be moderately to strongly leave. So I think, actually, uh, if I can be blunt, that getting voters to see the cost of living crisis through a Brexit lens would be the worst possible thing for Labour to do with an issue like the cost of living crisis, where the lens of I am poorer and continuing to get poorer and it's the government's fault is entirely ideal for an opposition. Um, Because it appeals across the Brexit divide. There's no partisan content to it at all. As soon as you make it about Brexit, a section of the Leave population will simply tune out that would otherwise have been listening. So that's an immediate cost. And I don't see what the upside is to it
0: so you're saying that leave is still a very salient identity among among some people who voted leave in 2019 because you I know mean, undoubtedly there have been people who've disengaged and don't consider themselves leavers anymore but uh, or or don't want to describe themselves in that way but it's there's still a core who do
3: more than a core. These are still the two strongest political identities that exist in the mass electorate. So in terms of the tribalism of politics, which is always really, really important, politics is, for a lot of people, us against them, the home team against the away team, my football side against your football side, and so on. In terms of that kind of tribalism, that kind of social identity, emotional attachment, Brexit is still more powerful than anything else in politics. There is some evidence that that power is starting to fade. Maybe that trend will continue. And at some point, these become, you know, background identities with the party identities foregrounded again. But we aren't, all the evidence suggests, at that point yet. Therefore, I can understand the extreme caution with which Labour approached this kind of situation. Because yes, of course, this Argument is not settled. This debate is not settled. We are going to have to talk about these things again. Um, But if you've got an issue agenda that's like manna from heaven for an opposition, a tanking economy, soaring cost of living, total policy failure across several fronts, why would you want that issue agenda to change? Why would you not want every single day to be about that issue agenda and about the government's failure to perform? You don't want it to go back Mm -hmm. to the tribal politics of leave and remain.
0: That is pretty persuasive. Naomi, Starmer is said to be about to rule out the return of freedom of movement under a Labour government. We can both agree, as Remainers, that that's a huge loss, I think. Does it make tactical sense for him to do
2: that? He thinks it makes tactical sense for him, especially with an important by-election in predominantly Leave voting Wakefield this week, um, and if Labour do win that, and this podcast will be out by the time we know, or, or maybe just a bit before, um, and they are expected to win, it won't be a ringing endorsement of Labour's strategy, but an indictment against Johnson's failing leadership. The strategy, if it you can call it one, um, it, it, with Labour at the moment, seems to be to sit quiet and take advantage of the free polling boost they're being given by the Tories. Um, now, it, it may be, and, and I hope that, that this is the strategy, that they are keeping their powder dry for an election before unveiling what they are for and what their vision of a Labour-led Britain would look like. But where I probably disagree a bit with Rob is that I think that's risky and um, because that same strategy failed to work for Miliband. He was an opposition leader for five years in a long parliament, sort of didn't say too much at all until the last minute Uh, and then it didn't pay off and we don't yet know when an election might be upon us because the fixed-term parliament act has been repealed it is now very much at uh, the gift of the prime minister to call it and there's plenty of rumors that i remain unconvinced by at the moment but that it could come as easily as the autumn and if so that doesn't give labour long enough to cement their vision in the minds of swing voters and of course brexit its impact is being felt so acutely by so many businesses who are employers that if a Labour-led government can't begin to be giving us a flavour of what it might do to ameliorate some of that, I think they could be in trouble. Is it part of Starmer's problem that people suspect he's
0: being a bit disingenuous and that he thinks Brexit was a very bad idea but won't actually say so? I mean, would he do better to be honest about it and say it was a big mistake but he can't see a way back to the
2: EU in the near future? Yeah, I think so. He he knows it isn't working. And if he ever doesn't get, you know, get into office and later changes his mind, he'll be branded as just the same as all the rest. You know, they say one thing and do another. And, you know, members of his party are peering over the parapet about it. As you said, Stella Creasy has written in The Observer last week. Anna McMorrin is another frontbencher who made comments uh, last week about, you know, wouldn't it be great if we could rejoin the single market? And these women are authentic. I don't think anyone believes that Starmer wouldn't prefer to have us back in the single market. And the thing about voters is that they will give you a fair hearing if you're authentic. If they think you're trying to pull the wool over eyes, you know, they, they just close off to anything and everything that you might be saying. So I, I think you're right, Ros. I think he, it would be serving him better to be being a bit more authentic about this. <laughs>
0: Minnie, the Attorney General, Suella Braverman, says she wants to complete Brexit by pulling out of the European Convention on Human Rights. And of course, that's really effectively part of the Bill of Rights bill that we were talking about earlier. You and I, and the listeners, of course, know that the convention isn't actually part of the EU. And Braverman obviously knows that too, because she's not that stupid. But (laughs) is there still life left in this pure sovereignty at all costs? obsession that the Brexiteers have had and which has pushed us towards such a hard Brexit?
1: Yeah, I I actually was looking at this from a campaign perspective or or a comms perspective and I actually came to the to a really similar conclusion as Rob which is that you know you've got the government wanting to do things right now like leave the ECHR which are definitively going to be hard to do because of just general opposition to lower human rights and things like the Good Friday Agreement and you've got a public which is starting to see issues in a bit more of an isolated way from Brexit particularly after Covid so you know you've got to pass some legislation which is going to be controversial and a bit of a slog and you've got a human rights lawyer leading the opposition so what the Tories really need to do is introduce an emotive frame you know a frame of things still still being out of control which they are the need for a common enemy to unite them, which is obviously the EU. And, you know, when combined with a legal structure that not a lot of people know about, you do have the makings there of something that will draw your audience back in immediately reignite a supporter base that you need in order to achieve your goal. So, you know, our listeners uh, are not the target audience. We're not the target audience. But I think if you're going to try and do something controversial from the conservative perspective, it, it works quite well to try and just bring everything back to Brexit and, and divide us again on those lines. We seem to be tacking right boards at such a pace. I mean, our approach
0: is now... Deviating from Europe so much. I mean, we demanded that Ukrainian refugees get visas to come here, and the EU didn't. We're deporting migrants to Rwanda and forcing them to try to seek asylum there. Do you worry that it'll be a long way back for Britain when Johnson is finally ousted?
1: Mm, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, from from when the like Nationality and Borders Bill was first even spoken about, not even introduced, I, I said right from the beginning that we need to look. Beyond the bill itself, which obviously now includes all of the things that we've talked about, deportation flights and um, Rwanda, you know, we need to look beyond that and think about the outcomes um, because we're going to see an increase in things that are so horrendous in our country, so, so horrendous things that we couldn't even possibly consider maybe four or five years ago, you know, military style camps that we've seen at Napier, those will probably increase, um, a huge increase in an already broken asylum system in the backlog. And I think actually my, my biggest concern about this whole thing is that you know, even if we weren't to have a Johnson government, you know, even if we were to have a Labour government, they've not made any of the right noises to say that they would attempt to reverse some of those outcomes, or that they've even understood the implications of the changes to the asylum system on a on a broader basis. So, you know, when it comes to migrants' rights, when it comes to the asylum system, it feels like it's going to be 10 or 20 years before we even start reversing some of these changes which is a really horrible note but that's how I feel about it well yes because Starmer didn't well Starmer's spokesperson anyway
0: when he was asked uh, what um, uh, what Labour's stance on the Rwanda
1: flights was and if they would reverse that didn't couldn't really answer Yeah, I mean, he did the same kind of sitting on the fence or, you know, refused to come out against it. But even more than that, it's the kind of depth within which they understand what the bill means over the next five years and what kind of system we will see. You know, it's going to get pretty bad for people of colour and migrants in this country, I think.
0: Naomi, are people inclined to think that the government is a victim of forces beyond its control and that, you know, the war in Ukraine and the rising price of energy across the world and so on are just making it hard for us. Or is there still quite is there still mileage to be got from asking again, as we have asked for a long time now, where are the Brexit benefits?
2: <laughs> what Brexit <laughs> benefits? We know there are none and there are certainly no net benefits. Um, there's been a meme that's gained traction this week which is asking leavers, which Brexit opportunity you would miss most if we re-entered the EU? Um, And it's hilarious because none none has an answer. Um, uh, You know, the government has tried to spin their victims of forces beyond their control with the pandemic, but, you know, the, the cost of living crisis and rocketing inflation is not as bad Uh, across Europe uh, and other mature economies as it is in the UK. And indeed, we are forecast to have the lowest growth of all major economies bar Russia. So the government can run from the truth, but they can't hide from the truth. And your first question was, are people inclined to think that the government is a victim of these forces? Some people who will back this government no matter what will defend them no matter what, and they will parrot that line. But we are seeing more and more and more people in the polling saying... I think Brexit has been bad for the British economy, bad for my personal purse, strings, etc. And so I, 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 I don't think they're getting away with it much longer. Of course, with everybody travelling now again, lots of us getting caught up in delays, more and more people realising that that is a staffing crisis in no small part caused by uh, the inability to, to bring workers over from Europe to um to, to fill those vacancies. Hospitality quite clearly on its knees as well. We've seen some win for um, seasonal workers. There was another 10,000 visas issued last week by the Home Office for farming and fruit pickers. But there are so many industries that need the same. Um, and I think people are really beginning to understand that we are suffering in the UK. It
0: feels like we will be huddling very close around that brazier called sovereignty, <laughs> trying to console ourselves. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Minnie, what's your Under the Radar this week?
1: Um, Yeah, so We Own It launched a new campaign last week to stop the planned privatisation of Channel 4. um, And it's got support from leading production companies and a whole host of celebrities and writers and I, I didn't see that get as much coverage as I as I thought it should and I thought it would be interesting for listeners because it's something that they can get involved in and support so I thought I would flag that really amazing um, and much needed campaign and you can check it out on the We Own It website. Great. Rob, what's your Under the Radar?
3: Um, I, mine uh, is much nerdier, I'm afraid, than, than Minnie's fab <laughs> suggestion. Uh, two, two slightly nerdy items that I think haven't had the coverage that they deserve. Uh, the first is I saw some discussion from various economist bods about the state of gas storage in the EU and the fact that the amount of gas stored at this point in the year is way below what we would normally mm. expect. Mm. They're not able to refill the stores And one of them was saying, this looks awfully like a situation that ends with rationing of gas in Europe. Now, I'm not sure exactly what that means for us, because I don't really know who we source our gas from and how. But it strikes me that the idea that we're seeing the worst of the energy crisis right now may well prove to be a very optimistic one. Then on the more optimistic side of the equation, the Mori polling on issue salience just came out yesterday. um, And immigration is on track to score its lowest score uh, since early in the new Labour government. Voters just aren't worried about immigration in the way that they used to be. And what I think that highlights is that a lot of the very divisive drum banging we've seen on the issue in the past uh, few weeks, it's not not working. Um, Mm. And I think that's a really, really important development and coming back to a discussion we're having earlier suggests that perhaps Labour needs not to be quite so scared of its own shadow on this issue because it's just a very different issue for the public now than it was.
0: It's also quite heartening isn't it because often during a recession people become resentful of outsiders but so far that doesn't seem to be happening does it?
3: No and and indeed this is is a continuation of of now a very long-standing trend perhaps even a decade or so The British are now more positive about the economic contribution of migrants. They are more positive about the cultural contribution of migrants. They are more open to higher levels of migration than at any point for which we have reliable public opinion polling ever. That, I think, is not widely realised and understood. Despite all the difficulties we're having, that is holding up.
2: Good news indeed. That is
3: good news. Naomi, have you got some
0: positive news for us?
2: Um, positive news? Uh, no. Um, I was going to say um, polio poo, um, but I think that actually hasn't gone under the radar. It is now on the front page of uh, the BBC News website. But this is the story that polio has been discovered in sewage in East London, which is uh, very 2020s, uh, <laughs> keeping in fashion. Um, but the, the story that I'm going to go with is uh, the Conservative Party fundraiser this week at the v um, where somebody bid £120,000 to win a dinner with Boris Johnson, Theresa May and David Cameron. I'd pay, a hundred if I had it, £120,000 not to go to that yeah. dinner. But I just think in the middle of a cost-of-living crisis to hold that kind of event on a week when inflation figures are what they are, you know, eye-watering, that we've got essential workers... Uh, having to pick it, um, it just smacks of the otherism and the fact that these people do not see themselves as having to live by the same norms, let alone laws as the rest of us. And I just thought it was staggering. And Henry Dyer at Business Insider is the guy to follow on it. He, he did a great live Twitter thread from outside and has written a piece about it today. And it's worth everybody's time having a quick read of that. It is it is grotesque.
1: I would like to know who convinced those three to have dinner together with a member of the public. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I,
0: I can't imagine that that dinner will ever happen. I mean, no. Cameron is, you know, not going to... Leave his uh, uh, pleasant um, retreat in Oxfordshire is he and I mean as far as I can tell Theresa made loads for it was probably a
2: joke just to try and raise some money and they never even asked them and that's cut in a way <laughs> isn't it would it past them. what about you Ross? what have you noticed well, I'm going to talk
0: about British fish. Because I know <laughs> everybody always loves it when I talk about British fish. Because there's a new um, a new report out today from uh, the Resolution Foundation on um, the British economy after Brexit. And one of the very worst hit industries is going to be the fishing industry. Uh, the fishing output is predicted to be 30% lower. Now, this is not what was... <laughs> Promised well, what, during, <laughs> during the referendum, recall. which, as you may recall, fish played a very major role, and the ability of uh, British fishermen to to fish, fishers to fish, and and to sell their fish was was prized. Of course, the problem is that we have to export our fish to the EU, and now that is very much more difficult because we're not in the single market anymore. So, you know, the fact that this poster child, if you like, for Brexit is is also falling apart, I thought was striking, to put it mildly. (laughs) And that's the show. Listen out for a quick Oh God, What Now? with me and Ian Dunt on Friday morning after the Tiverton and Wakefield by-elections. We'll be dissecting what those mean. Thanks to Naomi. Thanks
2: very much. Minnie. Thanks, everyone.
0: And our guest, Rob Ford.
3: Uh, Thanks for having me.
0: Our theme tune is Deban is a Monster by Corn Shop. You'll hear it in just a moment, along with a thanks to our latest Patreon backers.
2: Hello and an enormous thank you from me to Emma Langan, Beth Dawson, Will Pope, Richard Walker, Steve Hunter, Janet Bunker, Dawn Woods and Michael Gollop. And a big shout from me to Andrew Heathcote, Michael
1: Wardle, Morgan DeRody, Gregory Gulrajani, B Bigelow. Neil Campbell, Steve Jean and Lee Wolfenden. And hello from
0: me to Alan Barlow, Ernol Shermer, Brian Pritchard, Rob Knight, Andy Wooden, Pat Townshend, Alison Coggan and Jackie Smith, surely not the former Home Secretary. See you next time.
1: Oh God, What Now? is presented by Roz Taylor with Naomi Smith and Minnie Rahman. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn the producers are Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofrenovic, group editor is Andrew Harrison, lead producer Jacob Jarvis, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.
0: Welcome to the Oh God, What Now? extra bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. Boris Johnson had a sinus operation this week, which meant that Deputy PM Dominic Raab was in charge again. It's not the first time he's had to stand in. Indeed, when Johnson was in hospital with COVID, he did a better job than the PM himself, according to Dominic Cummings, who said, Rob could chair meetings properly instead of telling rambling stories and jokes. Still, it can be tough deputising for your boss, even if a part of you just knows that you're doing a better job than they ever could. So this week, I'm asking the panel when they felt out of their depth at work. Naomi, you're a CEO now, and a job with that a job that no one with any sense would let me do. But presumably you've had more junior moments as you climb the ladder.
2: I mean, I have had imposter syndrome to the maximum, especially the night before starting any and every new job I've ever had. I mean, for sure. And I don't know that it really goes. I think you just have a realisation that everyone's faking it all the time. And so it doesn't really matter if you are as well um but this is a really interesting topic um i I can remember i was for listeners who don't know i am a recovering accountant so i spent the first (laughs) sort of 12 15 years of my career and that's
0: a trailer for the extra bit exclusively for patreons search Patreon. oh god what now to find out how to subscribe thanks for listening